Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The school mask mandate in New Jersey will end on March 7th. Face masks will become optional for students for the first time since schools reopened in September 2020. GoFundMe defunded the Canada-based Freedom Convoy over the weekend. Millions of dollars lost. But the organization's fundraiser has a new home and donations are pouring in for truckers. The IRS has reversed its plan to require facial recognition technology. The plan was set to launch by this summer, but bipartisan pushback successfully stopped it in its tracks. U.S. officials have commented that Spotify needed to do more than just add disclaimers to Joe Rogan's controversial podcasts. Now that dozens of the episodes are gone, was it Spotify who deleted them? And a U.S.-born figure skater has come under fire in China after falling twice on her Winter Olympics debut for Team China. New Jersey is dropping its statewide school mask mandate next month. Governor Phil Murphy says that starting from March 7th, school districts will be able to decide whether to require masks. NTD's Allison Lee has more. Because of the dramatic decline in our COVID numbers, effective Monday, March 7th, the statewide school mask mandate will be lifted. This means masks will become optional for some students for the first time since schools reopened in September 2020. Governor Phil Murphy says individual schools and districts are still free to enforce their own mask mandates. And we expect that schools will take swift disciplinary action against those who may try to demean or bully anyone who chooses to wear a mask. We will not tolerate anyone being put down by exercising their choice to mask up. The governor says he made the decision because new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations continue to drop and they are projected to keep declining in the coming weeks. Vaccination rates are also up. We're not going to manage COVID to zero. We have to learn how to live with COVID as we move from a pandemic to the endemic phase of this virus. To be sure, we've known this for a long time. And we are optimistic that given the decreased severity of this new variant and the continued increase in vaccinations that we are finally nearing this inflection point. New Jersey and 14 other states currently have a statewide school mask mandate. Last month, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf dropped a state school mask mandate. Last week, governors in New York and Connecticut said they are reevaluating the school mask mandates in their states. Allison Lee, NTD News. And the governor of Delaware also announced today that the school mask mandate will end on March 31st. The statewide indoor mask mandate will lift on Friday, February 11th. And over 100 people marched over the Brooklyn Bridge today to protest New York City's vaccine mandate for municipal workers. Here are the details. City workers, including firefighters, are required to be vaccinated by Friday or face termination. Both vaccinated and unvaccinated residents showed up to support the rally. I'm fully vaccinated, but I don't want to be segregated from the unvaccinated. There should be no mandates. Workers should not be fired. John Mooney, a vaccinated municipal employee who supports the rally, stood before the crowd and ripped his vaccination card in half. Another supporter is a firefighter that came out to support his fellow firefighters. The reason why we're out here today is because there's 25 firefighters that are set to be fired on Friday. 
the mayor came down with his mandate and said, if you don't comply, you're fired. Essential workers are essential for a reason. Former Mayor Bill de Blasio first proposed the vaccine mandate, and new Mayor Eric Adams has continued to support the mandate. Joe Rogan and Spotify are coming under a lot of scrutiny these days. Over the weekend, dozens of Rogan's episodes were deleted from Spotify. Now, Rumble has offered Rogan a contract promising that all his episodes will be allowed on their platform. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. Rumble posted the offer to Joe Rogan on Twitter, saying, how about you bring all your shows to Rumble, both old and new, with no censorship for 100 million bucks over four years. It is not clear if Rogan will accept. His contract with Spotify is also worth $100 million. And more importantly, it turns out Spotify didn't censor him. He deleted dozens of his episodes himself over the weekend because he came under scrutiny for old videos of him saying the N-word. He posted this video on Instagram apologizing. There is no context where a white person is ever allowed to say that word, never mind publicly on a podcast. And I agree with that now. I haven't said it in years. Instead of saying the N-word, I would just say the word. I thought as long as it was in context, people would understand what I was doing. But many people didn't understand or didn't agree. Singer India Ri announced that she will take her music off of Spotify because of Rogan's remarks. Neil Young previously took his music off Spotify because of alleged COVID misinformation that's being spread by Rogan. Others, like Ben Shapiro, are supporting Rogan, however, saying this is not actually about him using the N-word. Nobody targeting Joe Rogan right now gives two dams about anything he said in the past. This is all just an opportunity for activists to destroy a guy who doesn't carry water for those with institutional powers and whose audience dwarfs their own. It is that simple. Influencer and personal trainer David Goggins posted a picture and added a similar opinion, saying that all eyes aren't on Joe because of his use of the N-word, rather for his views on other matters. They're using race, which is a real emotionally charged divisive subject, as a smokescreen for the real issue. Rogan previously filmed controversial episodes with Drs. Peter McCullough and Robert Malone. And critics say that's the real reason why some people are now trying to cancel him. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Tax season is upon us and many people are already filing their returns. The IRS was planning on requiring taxpayers to use a facial recognition software in order to access their online accounts. But a bipartisan effort on Capitol Hill forced the agency to reverse course. NTD's Melina Weiskop has the details. It's that time of year to file taxes, but this year the IRS is asking you to create a new kind of account, ID.me. Using facial recognition technology, the website asks you to take a selfie and match it to your government ID. The IRS describes the new system as a way to keep your personal information safe. The issue is um, the technology side, and, and the federal government has had a very, very poor history of dealing and holding and keeping confidential information uh, protected. The ID verification will not be required to file your tax return, but it would be required to view tax records and child tax credits. And on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are not happy about this. Today, Senator Wyden wrote, it is simply unacceptable. Republicans and Democrats have sent a handful of letters to the IRS asking them to stop the rollout. And secondly, you know, what are their security 
measures that they're following uh, and knowing that they're an absolute target by the Chinese Communist Party, the Russians and anybody else who wants to to use the information to weaken the United States. So cybersecurity is one concern for lawmakers. Representative Liu in his letter to the IRS wrote, Americans will be forced to put sensitive data into a biometric database, which is a prime target by cyber attacks. And that pushback from lawmakers has been successful. Just hours after Senator Ron Wyden sent that letter to the IRS, the agency came out today and said they will not be using facial recognition for ID verification. They're currently looking to transition to a new method, but it's unclear when that transition will be complete. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A group of New Yorkers is demanding justice for a murdered veteran and speaking out against the city's bail reform laws. Today was supposed to be the hearing date for one of the alleged killers who has been out on bail. But the hearing was pushed back yet again. It's now been four years since the murder took place. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Hassan Correa was a sergeant in the United States military and served in Afghanistan. In 2018, he was stabbed to death by four people in New York City. One of the alleged killers, Mary Saunders, has been out on bail for over two years now. Yes. This murder is four years ago. Yes, true. Four yes. years ago. And we're not even on trial. Nope. What's more, the hearing date for Saunders was just pushed back another 30 days over technical issues. But all I do know is that it's given Mary Saunders 30 more days to be free walking amongst us, okay? Um, it's given her 30 more days to plot and scheme and, and to either run or kill again. It's given 30 more days for me to feel tormented and tortured, not knowing if this woman is going to try to attack me, my family, my grandchildren. Or the victim's mother, Madeline Brame, has been vocal in her criticism of the city's bail reform laws. Saunders was freed from jail in 2019 after a Manhattan Supreme Court judge cut her bail down to $12,000. It had originally been set at $750,000. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani said the city's homicide numbers had once been on the decline, but now... How many times do you read that a woman was raped by somebody who was just let out on bail for rape? How many times do you read that somebody was shot by someone who had just done an armed robbery? We solved this problem in the 90s. I, when I became mayor, there were, we were averaging 2,000 murders a year. When I left, it was 600. When Bloomberg left, it was 300. I reduced murder by 1,500 bodies. Phil Wong of the Chinese American Citizens Alliance said the city's bail reform did more harm than good. But the problem now is we have a broken system. We have a system that worked. We know I grew up here. The system worked. And one man has taken matters into his own hands by helping the youth in his community and steering them away from a life of crime. I wanted to reach out and give young people a chance before they even get on that side of the, the spectrum to get they self together because it's really a big, one big format that everyone is getting caught up in. And so that's what made me want to do what I do, which is my compassion and my humanity for other people, not just myself. We reached out to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office for comment, but did not hear back before airtime. The people who spoke today spoke right in front of the DA's office. Some of them said that they don't like the criminal justice system and they think that it's broken and they would like to see big changes in the near future. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. 
Eleven days into the Freedom Convoy protest against pandemic mandates and restrictions in Canada, a judge has granted an injunction prohibiting protesters from honking their horns in downtown Ottawa. This as police scale up efforts to bring the demonstration to an end. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. After 11 days of continuous honking, the truckers protesting in Canada's capital city of Ottawa have been ordered to shut down their air horns. This is in response to a class action lawsuit against the truckers. An Ontario Superior Court justice granted a 10-day injunction Monday afternoon while he reviews case evidence. A lawyer representing Ottawa residents in the suit argues the loud and prolonged honking is causing irreparable harm. Plaintiffs have described the current living situation as unbearable. Police already appear to be taking action against those who don't comply with the order. In a video posted online Monday afternoon, an elderly man was pulled over for honking his horn. You have the right of freedom of choice. You have the right to beep your horn or whatever. Why are you doing this? Because it's an offense. Of it's what? An offense to beep your horn. No, it is not an offense since when? Tell me it's not. I have it written down that it is. It's actually an so offense. You're, you're... The elderly man was then arrested for not showing his ID. What are you doing? Failing to ID. Well, hey, hey! A lawyer assisting the truckers is urging strict compliance with the order. Meanwhile, Ottawa police are ramping up efforts to end the protest. The demonstrators, who are calling for an end to vaccine mandates and pandemic restrictions, have said they won't leave until their demands are met. So police are using a number of methods to try and make them leave. In a Monday briefing, Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slawley promised to be relentless. He said police are going after the protesters' supplies and funding. On Sunday, the mayor of Ottawa declared a state of emergency and police began seizing fuel from the truckers. According to the protesters, police have taken over 3,000 litres or about 800 gallons. The police also warned that those who bring the truckers' supplies, such as fuel, could be arrested. But the demonstrators don't seem phased. Monday videos show them protesting the fuel seizures and threat of arrest by carrying around jerry cans near police. The police chief said during the briefing that officers are stretched to the limit. He called the protest unprecedented and never seen in Canada. The mayor says the city will bring in more police and resources to end the demonstration in the coming days. While fewer protesters were in the capital Monday, thousands were present over the weekend. Although noisy, the protests were largely peaceful. Online videos show demonstrators singing, dancing and even setting up bounce houses for kids. Protests against vaccine mandates and pandemic restrictions also took place in Toronto and Quebec. A large number of protesters also gathered in Alberta, along the Coutts border crossing. Protesters arrived not only in vehicles, but also on horseback. Demonstrators are expected to gather again this weekend. Grace Coulter, NTD News. A few days ago, GoFundMe defunded the Freedom Convoy, saying it violated the company's terms of service. They had lost more than $8 million in donations. But the trucker convoy is back in business on a different crowdfunding website, racking up millions in three days. NTD's Miguel Moreno has the story. Freedom Convoy 2022 has set up an online fundraiser on Give, Send, Go, and it's being flooded with donations. The campaign's on day three, and it's already accrued over $5 million. 
It definitely is our top uh, quickest raising fundraiser to date. Heather Wilson and Jacob Wells founded Give, Send, Go, which they describe as the number one Christian crowdfunding website. The Freedom Convoy organization initially had their fundraiser on GoFundMe. There it had accrued over 8 million U.S. dollars, money the organization says was meant to cover expenses shouldered by truckers who traveled to protest in Ottawa, Canada. But GoFundMe defunded the campaign over the weekend, saying it would return the money to donors. GoFundMe says they removed the Freedom Convoy fundraiser because it violated their terms of service, specifically its term that prohibits promotion of violence and harassment. Why have you allowed the fundraiser on your website? Well, it's really interesting, actually, because GoFundMe first was allowing it, and it has allowed many other occupations of areas, even in the United States, where people were saying we're not going to live by the law we're going to make we're going to occupy this space to protest and we're even going to do some destruction in it and gofundme has allowed that so it's really crazy to us it's very one-sided and we're seeing that in gofundme's true colors are coming out yeah 100 percent uh, agree with that and um again this is not supporting violence or terrorism or anything of the sort these with the situation that's unfolding on the ground as much as many mainstream media outlets want to mainstream or corporate media whatever you want to call it are trying to paint this as one thing um this is where this where these funds are going to is to a canadian nonprofit that is doing a humanitarian effort to fund individual truck drivers and their families that have been put out of work because of authoritarian vaccine mandates that have pushed them out of work and being able to provide for their families. And they are protesting and, uh, and, and nonviolent. The protest has largely been peaceful, but Ottawa police reported on Sunday that there are over 60 criminal investigations so far related to the demonstration. Police say the investigations are primarily for alleged mischief, thefts, hate crimes and property damage. GoFundMe has both promoted and allowed on its website campaigns tied to the 2020 Capitol Hill organized protests known as CHOP. In that area, people were shot, assaults and robberies were reported, and both public and private property were vandalized. We asked GoFundMe why it supported campaigns related to CHOP despite the crime reported there, but we haven't heard back. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. A series of high-level diplomatic sit-downs today. Biden meets with the new German chancellor and the French president seeks to ease tensions with Russia over Ukraine. NTD's Iris Tau with more on that. Germany is one of America's closest allies. That's Biden welcoming new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to the White House. On the top of their agenda are the high tensions along the Russia-Ukraine border. It's fighting against Russian aggression against Ukraine. So it's an important meeting at a very, very important time. Germany is facing questions about just how willing it is to confront Russia, its major trading partner. But the two leaders insisted on Monday they are on the same page. Working on a lockstep to further deter Russian aggression in Europe and to address the challenges posed by China. We are absolutely united and we will not taking different steps. Biden adds that the two nations are jointly ready if diplomacy with Russia fails.
Meanwhile, I see how much effort the current France leadership and the president personally put to solve the crisis tied to providing equal security in Europe. The French president becomes the first Western leader to sit down with Putin since the standoff began. I think today's discussion can start to show the direction of where we need to go in a de-escalation. The high-level visits come as China is backing Russia's demand over NATO, touting a redistribution of power in the world. This as Senator Josh Hawley on Monday again urged Biden to reconsider his foreign policy, warning that America's biggest enemy is Beijing, not Moscow. Aris Tao, NTD News, Washington, D.C. Coming up, a U.S.-born figure skater renounced her American citizenship to compete for China. But now the Chinese public has turned on her after a disappointing showing at the Olympics. The favorite in the women's giant slalom crashing out, her next scheduled event, and the heartbreak of an American figure skater now out with COVID. His story and more here on NTD News. A U.S.-born figure skater gave up her American citizenship to compete for China. But she fell during her Olympic debut, and now the Chinese public are decrying her performance and her family ties. Some are taking aim at her father, an artificial intelligence scientist who recently returned from the U.S. to China. Let's take a look. For U.S.-born figure skater Zhu Yi, the 2022 Beijing Winter Games is the first Olympic experience on Team China. And she seemed eager to impress the Chinese public. But netizens in the country turned on the athlete after she fell in two events at the Olympics. For the netizens watching the Olympics in China, they took a very serious political stance. They don't see the competition as a platform to engage with foreign athletes in a friendly way. They see it as a battle of shame and glory between nations. Drew failed to land two separate jumps and finished last in the women's short program team event on Sunday. The next day, she fell again, twice, in the women's free skating event. Her flop knocked China down from third to fifth in the team standings. Drew faced immediate backlash on Chinese social media. Hashtags like, Drew Yi has fallen and Drew Yi messed up trended on China's Twitter-like platform Weibo, gaining more than 200 million views within a few hours on Monday. One netizen wrote, how dare you skate for China? And another comment brought up her former U.S. citizenship and her inability to speak fluent Chinese, questioning, is she an undercover spy? But why is the Chinese public so furious? Tang says it's because the Communist Party has politicized sports. So this makes Jews' competition, to a certain extent, no longer a sports competition, but a highly political task given by the party. Because in most of these netizens' concepts, they think only athletes who get good ratings can show they're patriotic. In addition, critiquing Drew's performance, other Chinese netizens have raised questions about her selection for the Olympic team, pointing the finger at her family ties. Drew's father, Drew Songchun, is a well-known artificial intelligence scientist. He reportedly left the U.S. and joined the university in China under Beijing's Thousand Talents Plan. Beijing claims its program is to recruit leading international scientific experts. But both the U.S. and Canada have warned it's a tool for Chinese espionage to steal new technologies. Nevertheless, the fierce backlash against Drew exposed a persistent problem in Chinese sports, the pressure to perform. Medal counts have long been touted by Beijing as a sign of national strength. 
These Western countries don't have such a strong political mindset. Their citizens won't compare your athletics level with the level of your patriotism. They are two different concepts, but in the CCP's propaganda of brainwashing, it confuses the two and uses this kind of national sentiment to add legitimacy to its own regime. Later, the hashtag criticizing Drew on Chinese social media was seemingly censored, but the harsh critiques and pressure seems to have gotten the better of Zhu Yi. She was seen bursting into tears on the ice during the latest event on Monday, saying she couldn't hold it back. Weight loss due to lack of proper food, sleeping fully clothed out of fear, daily tears and uncertainties. This is what quarantined Olympians are going through in China. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. And in Beijing, quarantine Olympians have had enough. Russian biathlon competitor Valeria Vanetsova said on Instagram for one of the hotels, My stomach hurts. I'm very pale and I have huge black circles around my eyes. I want all this to end. I cry every day. I'm very tired. She posted a picture saying she had eaten the same thing for five days. Plain pasta, sauce, charred meat on the bone, a few potatoes and no greens. Vanetsova noted she was losing weight and said her bones were sticking out. And she's not the only one with complaints. When Eric Frenzel headed into the isolation room after testing positive last Friday, his team quickly found the conditions there were unacceptable. Frenzel, a Nordic combined skier, has won three Olympic gold medals. And from the Olympic Village, Germany's team chief Dirk Schimmelfennig told reporters that the cleanliness, food quality and Wi-Fi all need immediate improvement. Yuka Yalonen, the head coach of the Finnish men's ice hockey team, complained in a press conference about the food. He said one of his team members tested positive upon arriving in Beijing. Since then, he has been in quarantine and a couple of times a day he served cold and tasteless spaghetti bolognese. The Finnish team doctor said the athlete is no longer infectious and that the ongoing isolation is not medically justified. The doctor said, quote, now it looks like it's more of a culture and a policy. Polish skater Natalia Melyushka describes her quarantine as a horror story. She says she was put in an ambulance at 3 a.m. in the morning after being released from quarantine. She said she didn't feel safe and was crying like crazy because she didn't know what was going on. Melashuska said she slept with her clothes on after that. The skater was also excluded from taking part in the 500-meter heats on February 5th. Melashuska said she was ruled in and out of the game several times due to conflicting COVID-19 test results. She says she doesn't believe those tests anymore. And the Winter Olympics yesterday saw a 15-year-old land the first-ever women's quad axle a popular American crash out on the slalom, and the first athlete to win individual gold at five Olympics Games. And today's Dave Martin gives us the day three highlights. Move over, Michael Phelps and Carl Lewis, and five others. Dutch speed skater Irene Vuswin Monday made her the first Olympian ever, winter or summer, to claim individual gold at five different Olympics. Wu's Olympic dominance began at the 2006 Games in Turin when she won gold in the 3,000 meters. 16 years and 11 medals later, she's now the most decorated speed skater in Olympic history. Her win Monday in the 1500 was an Olympic time record, and at 35, she became the oldest speed skating gold medalist ever. Michaela Schifrin's fall on the slopes just 11 seconds into her routine was as quick as it was shocking. 
The defending Olympic champion took a tumble at gate seven, resulting in her first do not finish in four years in the giant slalom. Now one of the most popular faces and biggest favorites of these games is out of one of her best competitions. The two-time Olympic gold medalist is still scheduled to compete in the slalom Wednesday and could enter as many as four more events after that. No U.S. skier has ever won three Olympic golds. 15-year-old Russian figure skater Kamila Valiva became the first woman in Olympic history to land a quad jump. She actually landed two of them before falling on the third, but still ended with the highest score of the competition. The epic performance helped the Russian team win gold in the women's team event. Canada's women's ice hockey team refused to take the ice for almost an hour while waiting for Russia's COVID test results. Six members of Russian's squad had tested positive for the virus last week. Eventually, both teams showed up wearing masks, though the Russians took them off after the second period. Canada, heavy favorites to win the gold, won 6-1 in the first masked competition of these games. And finally, American figure skater Vincent Joe announced he tested positive for COVID and will not compete in the men's singles competition. Joe, with his second Winter Olympics, was expected to compete for gold, though he would have faced stiff competition from fellow countryman Nathan Shen and Japan's Yuzuru Hanyu. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Coming up, a family lost their son nearly two years ago to a fake prescription pill. Now they're raising awareness about the dangers of counterfeit drugs made with fentanyl. Containers and vehicles going to the SoFi Stadium will be X-ray scanned for contraband, explosives, and products that would pose a safety hazard during the Super Bowl. That and more on NTD News. The illicit drug market has many ways of targeting people. In recent years, teenagers have become the target of online drug dealers selling counterfeit pills made of fentanyl. NTD Cynthia Kai introduces us to a Southern California family who lost their child to fentanyl poisoning, but are now dedicated to helping save others. May 14, 2020 changed the lives of Ed and Mary Ternan. Their 22-year-old son, Charlie Ternan, was found dead in his college dorm at Santa Clara University. I couldn't believe it was happening, that he was gone, you know, and they said, oh, he died of pills. And they said, pills? What are you talking about, pills? It's just here, and we didn't find any evidence of any pills, and, yeah, it's just the worst kind of news any parent could receive. Charlie was not an addict. His parents said he took a pill he thought was Percocet to ease his back pain from a previous back surgery. But the pill Charlie took turned out to be a fake, a pill containing highly potent fentanyl, which they have coined as Fenta pills. And, and again, we discovered later that Charlie took one pill, and that's an important part of the message. Um, we don't describe Charlie's death as an overdose. And what's happening these days is not really overdose. This is poisoning. Following their son's death, Ed and Mary began to research and connect with other families that had similar experiences. Soon, Song for Charlie was created in an effort to raise awareness and tackle the issue of fentapils. What they're being sold are these very realistic looking counterfeit pills. And so they take one, which is the recommended dose, and it kills them because it's completely fake and it's made of this really potent fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid. 
Their mission is to warn teenagers who are the primary victims about the dangers of counterfeit pills made of fentanyl. Ed and Mary are spreading the message on social media, in schools, and to other parents. And the ultimate goal through all of that is to get the kids to take some ownership of this issue. Because we think if the kids engage, that these deaths are preventable. Their goal is to get kids talking about the issue among themselves. Our saying is no random pills. And if kids start saying to each other, where did you get that? Don't put that in your mouth. Did that come from your doctor? Do you know where that pill came from? What is that? Let me look at that. Is that the real, like, if, if it starts to be taboo among the kids, uncool to share prescription pills, we think we can reduce a lot of death and sadness. Their organization name, Song for Charlie, stems from a sense of hope. It was also inspired by a song one of Charlie's favorite musicians wrote in memory of Charlie. Uh, he created this beautiful song um, for Charlie the day after he died. And, uh, you know, he called it Song for Charlie. And um, you know, Charlie loved mo movies and music and the arts and, um, you know, concerts and stuff like that. And, and we just thought, um, what a great name for our organization. Um, it's somewhat hopeful. Ed and Mary say they are hopeful that the counterfeit pills crisis can be solved. And in January, San Francisco opened a new linkage center. The facility is meant to offer services to people struggling with drug addictions. But a group of mothers are worried the center may be fueling the city's drug crisis. NTD's Cynthia Kai spoke to the group to hear more about what might be taking place in the facility. A group of mothers have gathered in front of the Linkage Center in San Francisco on Saturday morning. They're expressing their opposition to the supposed open-air drug use that's occurring in the center. The Tenderloin Linkage Center opened on January 18th as part of Mayor London Breed's December State of Emergency Declaration for the Tenderloin Drug Crisis. But the group Mothers Against Drug Deaths criticized the center for allowing open drug use in the facility, especially since it is meant to be a 24-hour, one-stop shop for people seeking assistance and help to stop their addictions. To me, it feels like going to an AA meeting in a bar, you know what I mean? <clears throat> or handing a loaded gun to a, to a person with suicidal ideations. It's very disheartening that the mayor has not kept up her promise to get rid of the BS. Currently, the city's Department of Emergency Management runs the center. They deny any drug use taking place in the center. However, about a week after the center's opening, the San Francisco Chronicle reported eyewitness accounts of open-air drug deals. Similarly, photos published by the Daily Mail around the same time captured people smoking, giving themselves injections, and partaking in what looks like drug deals. I believe that you can have a linkage center without consumption inside um, or sales inside, which is utterly ridiculous in my head. I don't, I just, I can't fathom that. The mothers repeatedly expressed their support for harm reduction and the linkage center, but were against the idea of drug use inside. It is extremely hard to walk through a linkage center if you're planning on going to the table for help and especially if you want recovery and pass drug deals going on and open drug use. Among the Saturday morning crowd was also a group of advocates for the Linkage Center, acting as a counter-protest. The group says the Linkage Center provides necessary services to people grappling with drug addiction, which the mothers agree with. 
take the safe consumption site out of the Lincoln Center, and it's a wonderful service. All demonstrations remained peaceful. The mothers say they just want to raise awareness and share their stories about the impacts of drug abuse. In 2020 and 2022, San Francisco reported over 1,300 drug overdoses, with fentanyl causing about 75% of the deaths. That's nearly double the 692 reported COVID-19 deaths in the same time frame. We are simply moms. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, San Francisco. Giant x-ray machines are part of the plan for Super Bowl security. They're to inspect trucks and vehicles entering SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. The x-ray machines can penetrate steel a foot thick. People will soon see large containers and vehicles getting scanned ahead of the Super Bowl at the SoFi Stadium. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection are conducting the security inspection. We use it to identify contraband, weapons, explosives, any items, any products, any merchandise or equipment that could cause harm to the American public. The x-ray machines can penetrate a foot of thick material, including steel. The contents of the container, regardless of size, will be visible in the system at a glance. This method is nothing new. The challenges that we're going to face at Super Bowl are the same challenges we face every day at our ports of entry nationwide. Starting February 6th, all containers entering the SoFi Stadium will be scanned one by one. Officials estimate that 250 to 300 conveyances will be inspected per day. To ensure that the players, all the attendees, and everyone involved in the event um, not only are safe, but that enjoy the game. Super Bowl 56 on February 13th expects to attract 70,000 spectators to watch the Rams take on the Cincinnati Bengals. Coming up, the latest about Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai. Now she's saying all the fuss about her sexual assault accusations was a huge misunderstanding. And the European Commission wants to create a digital identity card for each EU citizen. But some experts worry it could be used as a surveillance tool. That and more on NTD News. Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai says her sexual assault allegations against a former Chinese top official were a huge misunderstanding. She spoke with a French newspaper over the weekend. International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach says it's not up to the IOC to judge whether she could speak freely during the interview, saying it's her life and her story. This report comes from NTD's Ana Rodriguez. A spokesman for the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, says it's not their place to judge whether the latest interview with Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai came about as a result of external pressures on the Olympian. Uh, we are a sporting organization and uh, our job is to uh, remain in contact with her and as we've explained in the past, uh, to carry out personal uh, quiet diplomacy, to keep in touch with her as we've done, to meet her in person as we've done. The spokesman confirmed the IOC President Thomas Bach and IOC member Kirsty Coventry met Peng on Saturday. He said Peng expressed her intention to travel to Europe when the pandemic was over and Bach invited her to Lausanne to visit the IOC. Peng Shui accepted this invitation. Kirsty Coventry and Peng Shui also agreed that they would remain in contact and all three agreed that any further communication about the content of the meeting would be left to her discretion. 
The well-being of Peng, a three-time Olympian, became a matter of global concern when she appeared to allege on social media that a former Chinese vice premier Zhang Gaoli had sexually assaulted her in the past. The spokesman said it's not up to the IOC to judge whether there should be an investigation into Peng's allegation. You've seen the words um, which in the interview which she gave to Le Keep, I think it was an hour and more interview um, yes, yesterday or the day before, whenever it was, uh, which was published this morning. I think we need also to listen to her and we need to, for, for, to, to read what she's saying. Um, French newspaper La Quepe has published an interview in which Peng denies she ever accused anyone of a sexual assault, adding that she herself had deleted her social media post in November that had appeared to make such a claim. The newspaper says the interview was conducted in Chinese and translated into English by a Chinese Olympic official during the interview as well as an interpreter based in Paris. They said questions were submitted in advance and the paper agreed to publish Peng's responses without commentary. Peng was quoted as saying, I'd like to say that feelings, sports and politics are three very distinct things. My love life problems, my personal life must not be mingled with sports and politics. Anna Rodriguez, NTD News. The European Commission recently reaffirmed the EU's digital development agenda for 2030. One of the projects is the digital identity wallet. This wallet would function as an identity card and a payment tool and will also store private health data, all on your smartphone. While its proponents present it as a convenient tool, some experts think this could move Europe closer to China's social credit system. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has this story. This advertisement shows a day in the life of a woman using a digital identity card via her smartphone. It allows her to open a bank account, visit a doctor or book a plane. The advertisement comes from French multinational Thales, which is a leader in electronics, including surveillance tools. It talks about the convenience of how a digital identity wallet can serve as an ID card, payment tool and more. The digital ID wallet is an important project that the European Commission has in the pipeline. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has presented the digital ID wallet as part of Europe's agenda for digital transformation by 2030. Policy analyst and publisher Eric Verag closely looked on this project's development. He thinks it's one step further from the vaccine passport. The president of the EU Commission has presented the project of a digital identity wallet that would serve as an ID card, a credit card, and a health card with personal health information. They say this will make life easier for everyone, and at the same time, we will be able to choose which information will be stored on there, at least at first. Ten days ago, the Council of Europe said a vaccine pass should be mandatory to travel in the EU, which echoes the digital identity project. Showing a proof of vaccination for COVID-19 has been the only way for a normal life in France for about one month. French people have to present their vaccine pass to enter venues, restaurants, bars and hospitals. Verag thinks this digital ID wallet might be a first step into a more surveillance-oriented society based on digital technology, which might discriminate people, for example, based on their vaccine status. 
We are talking here about digital money. It will be possible to track money transactions between people. Why is that dangerous? Because the European Central Bank might decide to block a transaction. In other words, the token number 0001 is deactivated. It cannot be used to purchase fuel, a theater ticket, etc. He also says this might allow something like a Chinese surveillance system to take root in Europe. We see that in the framework of monitoring the population, this digital identity is very important. Why? This will allow a social credit system to take place, such as in China. We are used to a society of rights, and we are slowly switching to a society of authorities, where you have to ask authorities to do things you want to. The European Commission suggested to EU countries to start adopting the project so that the first tests can begin next year. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Advances in satellite technology have revealed that the world's glaciers contain significantly less ice than previously thought. That's according to a new study published today. That could spell trouble for some communities that rely on glacial meltwater, but there's also a positive side to the discovery. Here's more. Scientists now estimate there is 20% less glacial ice present in the world. That's according to a new study published in Nature Geoscience on Monday. The revised estimate reduces global sea level rise by three inches if all glaciers were to melt. But it raises concern for some communities that rely on seasonal melt from glaciers to feed rivers and irrigate crops. If glaciers contain less ice, water will run out sooner than expected. Countries are already struggling with disappearing glaciers. Peru is investing in desalination to make up for declining freshwater, and Chile hopes to create artificial glaciers in its mountains. Because the glaciers are melting away, it is already changing how frequently water enters into those river systems. And eventually, of course, if, if your river is, is supplied by a melting glacier that disappears, the river will disappear as well. The Nature Geoscience study assessed how quickly glaciers were moving across the landscape or their velocity. Such measurements allow scientists to more accurately measure volume as the way glaciers flow indicates where ice is thick or thin. But collecting this information has been limited by technology. High-resolution satellites deployed in recent years, however, allowed for the first analysis of how 98% of the world's glaciers are moving. In all climate science, finding out uh, the scale of the problem allows us to put in better steps to try and prevent uh, the worst case scenario. Now we know that there's 20% less ice in mountain glaciers, we have to think a little bit harder about how we want to preserve them. The work analyzed more than 800,000 pairs of images of glaciers taken between 2017 and 2018 and found that many were shallower than previously assessed. The, the one positive is that ultimately when all glaciers melt, sea level rise will be less than we thought it would be. But none of us want to end up in that situation. We want to preserve the ice on Earth and, and that now overnight becomes a more difficult challenge. Up next, near the border of Russia, one townlet hosts its first traditional skating competition using handmade wooden skates. And in Japan, we take a look at the art of crafting flag ornaments. That and more after the break.
In Japan, a workshop with more than 100 years of history crafts flag ornaments. The artisans say they create objects that symbolize the hopes and dreams of the people they represent. NTD's Chenny Wu tells us more. In Japan, a flag ornament is a metal emblem displayed above a flag that serves as a symbol of a group. They're often seen at festivals and ceremonies. The three-sided pattern of the ornament is designed so that the emblem can be seen from all angles. In the design process, the craftsman not only listens to the customer's request, but also does his own research. The pattern is first imprinted on a metal plate, and the next five processes, engraving, cutting, carving, welding, and polishing, are done entirely by hand. You can see a craftsman's skill from the welding. Not only do they need to pick the right welding tool, but they also have to determine the correct temperature solely by the sound it makes. Nishina Masaharu is a fourth-generation craftsman in the Nishina Flag Metalware Manufacturing Company. We are transforming the hopes and dreams of different communities into reality using tangible objects to bring people together and connect with the younger generation. We are helping in this effort. With a history of more than 100 years, Nishina Flags is one of only three flag metalworking workshops in Japan. In the past, the necessary metal carving tools were available from specialized craftsmen, but now they're almost impossible to find. We make all of the tools ourselves or modify the ones we buy in order to suit our needs. We have to do this. Born in a metalworking family, Nishina is passionate about his business and says that the younger generation needs practice and time to understand the joy of metalworking. There are countless difficulties and failures. After every finished product, it is hard to say I'm 100% satisfied. There are always things we can do better for the next time. We smile not only when we finish a project, but also when we discover areas in which we can improve. The workshop now supplements the traditional techniques with machines and computer-aided design. The artisans inherit not only the skills of our predecessors, but also the wisdom to adapt and survive. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Deep in the Caucasus country of Georgia, locals held a traditional skating competition, reviving an ancient tradition of using handmade wooden ice skates. More from NTD's Chenny Wu. Take a look at this site. On Saturday, participants wearing wooden skates called Lukmeds rode downhill on a special track in a traditional skating competition. The path ran through the small town of Mestia in Georgia. It's an area surrounded by ancient towers, some with foundations dating back a millennium. Looks like it was an exciting event. Every village has formed their own team already and is fully prepared to take part in the event. This means that not only will the valuable tradition be preserved, but Georgia will also be enriched by a new type of adventure sport. These skates are handmade and prepared individually for the skater to fit their foot size. Lasha Shukvani took first place in the event. He said there was more to the race than just winning. Winning the competition is very important indeed. But what's more important is that the tradition is revived. Ice skating with Ruthman became very popular among kids in my village. The happiness from the fact that the younger generation started to use these wooden ice skates surpasses my joy of victory. The race was sponsored by Red Bull Georgia. Chenny Wu, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.